0: it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Welcome into Bust Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 67. Got plenty to talk about. C.J. Abrams looks like a totally different player in the leadoff spot. We'll talk about that. Also, look at the second half. What are our expectations? What are we looking for? And who should they trade or who shouldn't they trade? Also, Keith Law was on with Grant and Danny talking about the Nationals' prospects. Dylan Cruz pick. You can hear all that right here on Bustin' Loose Baseball, Episode 67. Starts right now.
2: Bustin' Loose Baseball. Hosted by Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer. Gives you in-depth analytics and interviews on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Now, here's your host, Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer.
1: Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 67. Toby Altizer with you here alongside Grant Paulson. Appreciate you guys listening in. Make sure you like, rate, subscribe here on the podcast. Getting started here okay series coming out of the break grant they got one win you'd like to see them win some more games but you felt like they had a chance since they're on the road it's crazy that their home road splits are so different but uh, it wasn't great series out in st louis though
3: no it was not i mean you're looking for two out of three against a team that oddly has about the same record as the nationals do right because to your point when you're on the road the expectations go up and especially after you get the first game seven to five like they did on friday night now you got two games on saturday and sunday you just got to find a way to win one of them and you steal a series uh the cardinals explode for nine runs on saturday and then eight more on sunday josiah gray didn't have it which we can talk about but they ended up i thought offensively having a good series i mean the nats scored 17 runs in the three games generally speaking that 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 is going to be enough for them i think to win at least one if not two games so um I liked some of the things they did, you know, scored 10 runs in their final two games. Shouldn't have been two losses, but as you said, the story has been CJ Abrams coming out of really the end of the first half into the second half. And now they got to dial some starting pitching back in.
1: Yeah. They go out to Chicago. Now the friendly confines, hopefully they can get in a series without a rain delay. We'll see if they can do that. But so far with CJ Abrams, six games in that leadoff spot, he's had 27 plate appearances. He's had 12 hits, two walks, Eight runs scored, a double, a triple, a homer, two RBIs, five stolen bags. That's a .480 average, 500 on base, 720 slug, a 1220 OPS. This guy's looked like a totally different hitter, Grant, when he's been at the plate in that leadoff spot. I like the fact that his approach is going the other way, taking what's given to him. He's got a at-bat against Jordan Hicks. How I don't know how anyone gets a hit off this guy with how hard he throws and the movement he gets. And he just shoots one into left field, no problem. That's the kind of approach you like to see out of CJ. Yeah,
3: this has been a blast to watch. Here, yeah, This is the hottest stretch he's ever had as a national, and it's not close. If you look at his last six games uh, in order, so I'm going to go from six games ago against the Rangers until this last game. He went one for three, two for four, three for five, two for five, two for four, and two for four. So that's five consecutive multi-hit games. That's a six game hitting streak for him. And as you mentioned, he had a stretch where he stole a base in five straight games. From the final four games of the first half to the first game of the second half, he stole two, one, 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 and two bases in succession. So you kind of tally all that up here, coinciding almost directly with him becoming a leadoff batter. It's almost like the mentality has changed, his aggressiveness has been elevated. 12 for 29 at the plate. That is a 414 batting average in his last seven games. An OPS over those seven games, not only over 1,000, but over 1050. Uh, his last 15 games, which is a decent sample, it's you know 55 at bats. A 364 average with, again, an OPS right around 1,000. And then if you extrapolate things out over 30 games, so this is essentially a sixth of a baseball season, right? like over 100 at bats between a fifth and a sixth of the year. He's hitting 285 and his OPS in that time has been right around 770, which is, you know, about 50 points above league average. So, there are some really encouraging signs for CJ Abrams here. If you look year to year, and I know last year was not good, so this is more an indictment on how bad offensively things were last year. You know, his OPS is up 100 points from a season ago, but everything's up, his on-base, is slug, uh, last year, he hit about 240. Right now, he's hitting 255. There is obvious growth here, and it's encouraging. Like, this is what this year is about. I'm really excited about it.
1: Yeah. And I think that when you look at what you've gotten this year out of CJ Abrams, if you were to just look at your regular totals, you know, a 254 average, just under 300 on base, the slugging percentage all the way up to 420, I think you'd be pretty happy with this. And then you throw in the way that it's gone about this. He started slow, you know, almost a little discouraging in a lot of ways. Cause you really were watching the young kids. We've talked about this before for this season that you're just kind of watching the young kids. You want to see how they do. And with CJ, he starts slow. So you're maybe a little bit discouraged, but you got to remember how young this guy is. And he's learning at the major league level. This guy hasn't played tons of professional baseball. He didn't play a ton in the minor leagues before he got sent to the majors, So He's kind of learning on the fly in the major leagues, and he's going to have to learn with the Nationals here. And it's taken some time, but it looks like over the last month, really, that he started to find something. And I think you add on that he looked like he was starting to find something towards the bottom of the order. I think Davey recognized that maybe he was turning a little bit of a corner, and Davey just wanted to throw a little extra on his plate and said, hey, go ahead and lead off for us and figure it out. And I think that CJ just sometimes needs that little bit of a challenge from the manager, from – Uh, just that little extra bit of responsibility, right? And now he can kind of take ownership, not to say that he doesn't like being in the lineup every day, but down in the nine hole, not to say that he's, you know, disappointed about that or moping around. That's not what I'm trying to say, but if you put a guy in the leadoff spot, he can kind of take ownership of that. I'm the leadoff hitter for this baseball team. I'm the table setter. And I think you've kind of seen that over the six games so far, like this dude's getting on base any way he can slapping hits the other way, stealing bases, Those are the kind of things you see out of C.J. Abrams. And I'm totally fine if this narrative of him being a soft-hitting shortstop kind of, even if it were to stick around. I mean, you had a double, a triple, and a homer in this time span, so I'm totally fine with what he's doing. But even if he goes back to more of the guy that's more of just a singles hitter, I can live with that if you're stealing bags. Like, D. Gordon had a place in this league for a long time because he'd get on base and then he'd steal a bag. I think C.J. can do that. You know, I think he's got a little more power than that. But if even if he just turns into that, I'm fine with that because that's a good leadoff guy that gets on in front of the, the boppers in the middle of that lineup, steals a bag. That's what I want to see out of CJ. So I've been very encouraged with what I've seen out of him.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, a couple of things on him. Uh, the, the two areas that I just was dumbfounded by that we weren't seeing more of. Like, I understand it takes time to develop, and he's very young, and he's developing at the big league level and all those things. I didn't know why he didn't run more. Like, that was just frustrating to me. You got to be on base to run. That goes without saying, but he's on base enough and there's never really stolen base opportunities early in the year. And I did not get that. The other thing, and we talked about it on the pod quite a bit, the lack of doubles, like with your speed base hits that aren't directly at outfielders could be hustle doubles. I just didn't understand why there weren't more doubles, like steal some of those and your slug goes up and your OPS goes up and you're in scoring position. And both of those things have happened in spades. And the steals more recently here in the last week or so. But the doubles really over the last month, I'd say, have skyrocketed. And if you look now, we're about almost on the nail at the number of at-bats he had last year in the big leagues between the Padres and the Nats. I think he was right around 285 at-bats last year. And right now he's around 295 at-bats. So you're a couple of games off. But he scored about 10 more runs. He's got five more hits. So very comparable there. But total bases, 90 to 125, like he's doing a lot more damage. Five more doubles, uh, twice as many triples, four times as many home runs. He's gone from two to eight, you know, almost double the RBI, over double the walks, still doesn't walk at all. He's got 12 walks. I'd like to see that number go up. But, you know, over twice the stolen bases with fewer caught stealing. That's kind of what I'm looking at is just the growth. Like, yes, it's still not where you want it or need it to be, but – I say this too often. I'm a broken record on this. Eighth youngest player in the major leagues on opening day, right? I mean, it's it's just, I, I know people don't like hearing this, but it doesn't always come easily. We got spoiled with Harper and with Soto and, and with Rendon and some of those guys, you know, that hit right away. And I would also just point out, Abrams is not on that level of Harper, an MVP, or, uh, or uh, Soto, an MVP. Like, that's not what this is. But if, if you could start to dream on, all right, let's say maybe he's a 15 to 20 home run guy at his peak, and maybe he's a 35 to 40 steal guy. Like, that's a really important, valuable player. He's also, oddly, I was talking to Dave Jagler about this recently, the voice of the Nats. He's played way better defense lately since being moved up to the leadoff spot. It's almost like his whole game, his confidence is carried over from how he's hitting. But if you're playing good defense at shortstop, with his range, getting to the types of balls that he can, that very few guys are able to at that spot. And you're hitting, I'm just going to throw numbers out, but like 16 to 18 home runs and you're stealing 42 bags in a season and you're hitting 275 or 280. Like that is going to make some all-star teams. And it's going to be a really valuable, good player on a first division club. Uh, I would point out, again, I'm not telling you this is a great year, He's still below league average, I think, with OPS. I think league average is around 720. In fact, he's he's right about league average now. So that's actually a really encouraging sign. Um, having said that, he's got some better like better numbers. If you pull up him and Trey Turner and you compare the two, batting average, OPS, stuff like that, like he's outperforming a guy who was great in the WBC, who's been
1: an MVP caliber player before. So uh, there is plenty to like here with the Abrams progression. Yeah, and we'll just continue to watch throughout the rest of the second half here and see exactly how he does because, I mean, you got that first series out of the break. He looks good in that leadoff spot. We'll see how it continues.
0: It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
1: Are there any expectations you have? Are there anything that you're watching here in the second half specifically to see exactly how guys are growing or what are you looking for out of the Nats in the second half here? Well, we just saw Josiah Gray make a start, and it didn't go all
3: that well. Uh, I'm really interested in kind of his second half. Is there a regression coming here where the ERA of of now over three and a half, you know, does it finish – in the fours, or, or is he able to sustain this and have a three four for the season or something like that? Uh, you and I have looked at some of the out, you know, the pr- uh, peripherals, as I call them, but some of those outliers against his success and, and some of the results this year. We've kind of expected that there was going to be some regression. I mean, you've seen now 18 hits in his last two starts over 10 innings, which is not, a, not where you want to be. Now, he's done a really good job holding teams to just three and four runs, but he's had to get bounced from the game after five innings to do it. So when I look at his game log, like I'm looking for the last really good JoJo start. He had one against Philly where he went six innings, one run, eight strikeouts at the end of June, three starts ago. Other than that, I like the seven inning four run outing he had against Houston, but it's not a quality start. So if you're looking for a quality start, you got to go back to May 16th. Uh, seven innings of one earned run ball with five strikeouts at the Marlins, and that was back-to-back quality starts. But since then, he's pitched right around ten times, and I think he has two quality starts, which is six or more innings, three or fewer runs uh, by definition. So I, I just want to see, you know, the second half for him. You know how he locks it in. What becomes of his his season? We saw him go the distance last year, so it's not like he's doing it for the first time. But it's still a grind. He didn't get to take the All Star break off like he typically does for a young player. That can sometimes lead to you know a little more fatigue into August and September. Um, He's still 25 and kind of building up the strength and learning how to figure out how to navigate 162. And I guess by by that token, I would also throw Mackenzie Gore into the conversation. Your boy. I mean, Mackenzie Gore uh, is. I think the highest ceiling starter that they have, but he's hit the skids here, right? I mean, uh, we saw, uh, him go two and two thirds, six hits, seven runs against the Phillies last time. Then he pitched against the reds and the rain came. So he's had a nice little break. I mean, that was 11 days ago and he hasn't thrown as of right now, since, since a four out, uh, performance where the the rain came. But uh, I want to see how he finishes the year. You know, this is the first time now as a 24-year-old because he got hurt last year and kind of got shut down. He's already surpassed last year's start total, last year's innings total. Uh, How do they use him? How many innings? How many pitches are they giving him down the stretch? So I guess I'm back where I started the year, Tobe. You know, I I cared about those two pitchers almost more than anything. And if you're asking me in the second half, like, what my eye is on, it's Abrams Ruiz offensively. And it's Gore and, and Gray from a pitching standpoint.
1: Yeah, and if we look at some of Gray's numbers, I'll get to Gore in just a second, but a 503 ERA last year to a 359 this year. But if we're looking at the expected ERA, a 425 last year and a 451 this year. So to your point about some of these peripherals, it doesn't, baseball savant and Statcast does not like so far what Josiah Gray has done this season. And so we'll see in this second half, I talked about this a little bit, uh, the other day. So I'll pull up some of these numbers. They're not current. These are as of before the, the last start, but his ground ball rate was up 9%. His barrel rate was down 3%. His launch angle was down six degrees. We talked about his pitch mix being different this year. So we'll see if Josiah Gray can continue. I guess you would say good luck this year and continue to go out there and produce results on the baseball f- field that don't necessarily show up in Statcast. I'm interested to see that though, because this is a guy that was your all-star he was your team leader and the guy that represented you out in Seattle. Is he able to continue that? And he he's battled. Like you said, it's been a while since we've seen a dominant JoJo outing, but I don't know if I see JoJo ever being a dominant starter. That's why he's kind of a fun guy to root for. He's a bulldog. He goes out there and he fights hard for however many innings he can get to, you know, 100 pitches every time out and does his best. And you, you see where he's at at the end of it. He tries to keep the team in the ball games. He's done that this year for the most part. So I think with Josiah Gray, that's a great point that let's see if he can continue having the year that he's had. And then on to Mackenzie Gore, you talked about his innings. He's already at 89 and two thirds innings pitched. And we talked about this during the rain delay when he had to get taken out. It might've been a blessing in disguise because his most innings he's ever thrown in a season in professional baseball was 101 in 2019. And so, I mean, if he goes and finishes that outing, you're sitting at, what, 93 innings, somewhere around there, and you're already one or two starts away from him getting to that threshold. So it'll be interesting to see how exactly they manage him in the second half. Do they skip some starts? You've already seen that they are not going to pitch him in the first three, uh, the first series of this second half. So they're trying to save him some innings. How are they going to manage him down the stretch? And I'm interested to see, too, now that he's had that extended break, We saw Jake Irvin have a skip start, basically have 10 days off, and he came back a totally different pitcher, and he was better, way better afterwards. Can Mackenzie Gore have that same sort of thing? Because what we've seen so far out of Mackenzie Gore has been encouraging. He's ninth in the league in terms of a minimum of 80 innings pitched in Ks per nine. So he's striking out a lot of guys, 108 strikeouts. The problem, the flip side, if you're doing minimum 80 innings pitched, Seventh worst in walks per nine. This guy is walking a lot of guys. So 108 strikeouts, but 39 walks, a 442 ERA. I think you're pretty happy with that. If you didn't know the context of the season, that's, you know, for most of the year, he's been spending it in the threes. The problem is the 146 whip. That's really the problem. You need to get that down, continue to, you know, dial in on the strike zone and improve. But I think what we've seen from Gore so far this season has to be encouraging. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they manage him but if we're going to go to the bat side, well, I agree quick, on, Before
3: you move on. Sure. I want to touch on a couple of things. So the first thing, huge point and a good point on Gore and the walks. I would just add a little color to say, I do think he's improved as the years gone on. Right. So that walk rate is what it is. I mean, it's real, but I think it reflects. He had 16 walks just as an example in April. He had 12 in May. He had eight in June, so you are noticing the staircase going down here. July, obviously, he only pitched the one uh, any uh, the one outing, and he got shelled two and two thirds. Uh, but he did walk three; that was not not good at all. So his walk rate is terrible in the month of July, uh, if you look at it. But I do think early in the year, more of an issue with the walks. Hopefully, it sustains and he continues to to do some good things. You mentioned something with Gray that I wanted to hit on as well, which is I, I think it's important to note, like. When he was acquired, I don't remember how I felt exactly about what he could be. I, I, I don't think I've ever expected him to be an ace. Or, or maybe I thought a number two possibly as like a frontline guy because he was a pretty high-end prospect with the Dodgers. But really, since I've been watching him closely, I think a number three is kind of where you hope he ends up. And he's basically, to your point when you say he's probably not going to be dominant, like he's looked more like a back-end guy. Uh, mostly like a fourth starter this year kind of um, now he just made an all-star team and he went three up three down against three Rangers in the all-star game. And that was really cool. Uh, I'm not belittling Josiah gray. I mean, he's probably my favorite player on the team. If I was going to buy a Jersey of someone, it would be him. I, I really love the guy. Uh, having said that, I think there's still like, you might be right, or you're definitely right that he's probably not the ace of the staff ultimately when they're winning the division again, I think there's more ceiling, though, than what we've seen. Like, the best version of him is that stretch he had for nine starts early in the year. where his ERA was a little over two, and he was awesome. And I think that's why he became an all-star. And and that's better than what we've seen here recently. So whereas he's mostly pitched maybe like a four-ish type starter, I think he probably could settle in as like a three. Now, they may not need him to, right, depending on what happens. If they sign a horse and an ace, and, and Gore is their two, and Cavalli's their three, and Gray's their four. I mean, it d- doesn't really matter how you slot these guys in by definition. I, I guess my point is I, I do think there's a little more ceiling for him still to be a mid rotation starter.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think he's still trying to find that perfect mix of pitches for himself. Right now, he's he's down on the four-seamer almost 16% this season, so he's taken a lot of that out of it because last year that was one of the worst pitches in baseball. He's throwing the slider more. I think he's just got to find that perfect mix. Him and Hickey are going to continue working on that. You mean you've seen him work in a cutter. You've seen him work on a sweeper, all types of different things. I think once they find what exactly works for him, then you'll see him really take that step forward uh, once again. So going to the bat side of things, you mentioned CJ and those guys. We're obviously going to continue to look at the young guys, but if we're looking at some of the veterans, the guy I'm interested to see is Joey Meneses. Can he continue to hit the ball out of the ballpark? Can he continue to drive the baseball? Because this is a guy that honestly, I was thinking he could be a trade ship at the deadline going into the season, because if this guy were to continue to hit the ball, like he was, he would have been the power in this lineup. He would have been your middle of the order bat, but then, Someone would have probably liked to have him if he was going to continue to hit like that. And he hasn't. So can he find it again? He did in that Texas series, but can he continue to hit the ball out of the ballpark? Because I think if he does that, we saw him do it all of last year when he came up for the nationals. And I know that's a short sample size. We saw him do it in the world baseball classic. And for whatever reason, through the first 80 games of the season, we saw him hit two homers. So I don't know what happened there, but if he starts hitting them again in the second half, I think he's someone that you maybe look moving in the offseason if someone were interested in him. It's not like you're going to get tons for him. It's not like he's going to bring in a haul. But I think if you're if he's not hitting for any power, he's never going to go anywhere. But if he hits for some power, a team might look to add him. So I think looking at Joey Manessis, and obviously even if they don't move him, this order needs some power, and he's the guy to do it. So I'm interested to see if he can continue hitting for power.
3: Yeah, if he ends up with like 15 homers or something, he hits nine more and it'll have been – basically 13 since the middle of July on, you know, maybe somebody's intrigued. I mean, he's 31, right? So mm-hmm. it's just, it's going to be hard. I think if you're talking about trading him to get anything back, that's particularly valuable, like he might actually have more value as a guy who hits two eighty for you as a DH with a little bit of pop, uh, than whatever you're getting back. Although I'd make the case if I could flip him for, you know, a kid and a ball throw in 95, I might just do that. Um, take a lottery ticket over, you know, an aging uh, guy that I got as a minor league free agent, you know, on the waiver wire. But uh, baseball is just incredible. I don't, I don't really have anything more to say about Manessas and the power surge than that. Like you and I sat here, bro, for months going, what in the heck is going on? Joey <laughs> Manessas can't hit a home run. He is, uh, oh, I forgot the guy's name already. Who was their second baseman last year that didn't homer for, like, 300 at-bats? Oh, Cesar Uh, Hernandez. There you go. He can't hit a home run. Like, what is going on here? This is outrageous. And sure enough, in a three-game sample, right before the break, he homers four times after two homers in 80 games or whatever. Like baseball is so crazy. Same thing with CJ and the steals. Why doesn't he steal more? What is going on? 77 games, nine steals. And then in the span of five games, he had seven steals. Like it's, it's just such a funny sport. It's why I love it. Uh, But I'm guessing that he will start to drive the ball more. It's clearly to to me, he figured something out with the swing. um, and, And he's lifting the ball a little bit more. And if that means the average dip sum, so be it. I, Look, he hit almost 300 and his OPS was like barely over 700. That doesn't get you very far. I'd rather you hit 260 and have an OPS closer to 800. You know, that's going to lead to a lot more runs, I think, in offense uh, the rest of the way
1: for the Nats. And then looking through the rest of the way, we're approaching the trade deadline just in a couple of weeks here. Any guys that you're looking at, I think the obvious one is Jamer Candelario. I think he's at the top of the list, and I don't see any way, aside from him being injured, that he's a national past August 1st. What do you think you could get back in a trade for Jamer?
3: I don't think they're going to get anything that's, like, overly exciting. Uh, I think they will get kind of a middle-of-the-pack, top-30-type prospect from a team, maybe. And my hope in that is just based on... Uh, I think the market's pretty bare. Um, but remember, it's a rental player, and it's not a star. Uh, I am also pretty high on Candelario. I liked him when they acquired him more than people did. I, I like him now, I think, more than people do. That does not mean I would keep him. I would trade him. But I think he's a good defensive third baseman. Who's, I think he's awesome in the clubhouse. He's incredibly valuable as a leader. When When I sit in what I call the good seats, occasionally I'll get some good seats, And I'll, you know, go down by the field and the way he interacts in the on deck circle with guys in the dugout or the way he grabs Luis Garcia as he's walking to the plate or whatever and has a quick conversation with him like that stuff all adds up and matters. And he's been really, really good for them. And he'll be really good for whatever team brings him in. You know, I could see it being. Somebody's like, depending on how good the system is, like 17th or 18th or 20th prospect or something, you know, maybe they go quantity. If that's a strategy, you could go with like two players or three players that are unranked prospects, you know, that are really, really low down the not only the rankings, but the, the pipeline. Like I said, where you just take, you know, you flip Jamer Candelario for a couple of pitchers that are teenagers. And if you want to trust in I don't even want to say your development staff, but trust in the fact that you can kind of accidentally stub your toe into one of those guys becoming something. That's not a bad philosophy either, but I think they have to trade him. I would trade him. My question is, would you trade Hunter Harvey? Uh, He's got two years of control left. He's turned himself into a really nice back-end reliever, throwing 100 for them. He's been their de facto closer here recently. Uh, He blew some saves early on, and I know people got down on him. But he's really young in the role at 28 years old and doesn't have a lot of experience. And he's a career ERA in the twos this year. His whip is under one. He's actually been fantastic. Like I think they might be able to get something decent for him with two years of control. Uh, That might be their best return perhaps if someone really likes his arm. Yeah.
1: I think the only thing with him is now watching what's going on with his arm here, whatever that is, the injury concerns from before. And now there's some concern now with MRI and everything. So we'll see what happens with that. But, you know, just saying if he were healthy, I agree with you. I think that he probably brings back the best return. I think with Lane Thomas, I don't think that he's getting moved, but, Looking back at the the relievers, my thought process on trading relievers is if you can get anything for any of them, just trade them. Now, I don't say that I want them to just move guys for the heck of it. Like, you know, we're talking about Jamer, maybe bringing back a couple of unranked prospects. I'm not trading Hunter Harvey for that. I'm not trading Kyle Finnegan for that. But if teams are willing to give you something, go ahead, move them. Because maybe Harvey could be the exception, but I don't look at these guys as being... Help when this team is legitimately good again, you know. I I don't even if say Harvey were under contract for the next five years. I don't know that I see Harvey being the closer. Maybe he's a seventh inning guy, so maybe you could say that he's still valuable in that case right. when this team is competing. But is Harvey really your closer when you're competing again and for a playoff run? I don't know that he is. So I don't mind moving any of these guys if one of them looked like that and he was under control for the next couple of years. I would have a little bit of a different approach, but my thought process is you got to find relievers at some point that can help you down the road. I mean, they have a couple of them that can help you this year in terms of Edwards and Finnegan and Harvey. Those are the only guys they seem to really trust and rightfully so, but I, I I would be fine moving any of those guys and almost all of them. Honestly, it would stink to watch this team without those guys because I mean, who are you throwing out there? Jordan Weems is now your closer, I think, would be something of that sort. So it would be a tough watch for Nationals fans. But if you could get some guys back and teams really want those guys, I mean, with this new playoff system, there's not a whole lot of clear sellers. The Nationals are a clear seller, and there's going to be a lot of buyers. And so, you know, maybe we're thinking that you're not going to get a whole lot for some of these guys, but when four and five teams want these guys, it drives the price up a little bit. So we'll see. I'm not saying that they're going to get anything crazy back for these guys, but I don't hate moving on from any of them. The, the, the one guy that I would say that we heard talked linked to, to trade rumors before, but not anymore, really Lane Thomas. Yeah, we, we've had this discussion a little bit before Grant, but I'm not moving that guy. I think that he actually can be at worst your fourth outfielder going forward in a couple of seasons. But even if he sticks at this sort of level, he can be an everyday right fielder with Wood and Cruz coming up in the next couple of years, I would hold on to him unless you get something crazy back in return.
3: So I'll get to Lane Thomas in a second. The update, uh, just so people have it on Harvey, is that he felt soreness in his right triceps. Uh, That was after the Saturday game that he played this weekend. Having an MRI, this was, I think, as of yesterday, and they thought that they were going to be putting him on the 15-day injured list. So my hope is both from either staying with the Nats or being traded. Now you've got time theoretically where he could get a, you know, 15 day refresher, recharge the batteries. I mean, guys have gotten traded before when they're on the injured list if teams feel like it's not a serious thing. Uh, Having said that it's still possible. I guess you could move him, but yeah, that that is a a complicating factor to your point Uh, with Davey yesterday saying it's more than likely that he'll go to the shelf. uh, If he set it to the 15 day injured list, um, <clears throat> they're being cautious. I mean, that, and that was something that and they uh, should be. Davy said, "I'd rather be very careful, very cautious with him." So I guess I'm not thinking of it as a serious injury that would prohibit them from trading him. But this is a guy who underwent Tommy John surgery in 2016 and has had all kinds of health things going on throughout his career. So uh, to your point, you know, a you got to be cautious, and b it could hinder their chances of moving him. But there's enough time on the calendar that if they wanted to you know put him on the shelf briefly here for 10, 15 days they'd be able to do that um, and uh, we'll see we'll see what happens there uh, on Lane, I think you're right I think you just have to be blown away. Um, I would I'm more likely to, to trade him I'd say than the, the average Nats fan is. I'm pretty cold-blooded with, with this rebuild like uh, if, if you are able to get me something back that helps me in a year or two. I'm doing that. Now, the point could be that he could help you in a year or two. Uh, I'm not, is this what Lane Thomas is every year, right? I I think this could be his career year. And so I like selling high, no different than when you're moving out of your house. Um, That said, uh, you're right. I mean, he's played so well. He's got enough control now. You could trade him this offseason, still as an example, uh, with control left and get something back. I don't think you have to move him unless someone really makes you move him. So this is not a, hey, we'll give you, you know, our Riley Adams or, or Mason Thompson or, you know, some of the moves they've made at the deadline, like no chance. This is I want something young and controllable that helps me, you know, in the, the minor league level that I think is a good prospect that I'm going to add to my system. My
1: guess is, you know, that they don't get that offer and he sticks with them. Any other guys that you think that maybe could get moved? I know we talked about maybe Ildemar Vargas. We've heard him thrown out there. I don't know that there's any other guys, though.
3: Yeah, I think Vargas could get traded and should get traded. I mean, honestly, he, he's valuable. He can play a lot of positions defensively. He never strikes out. He puts the ball in play. He comes up with some big swings. Like He's not a starter on, on a team that's making the playoffs, but I think he could be a really nice bench bat. I would absolutely be interested in bringing a guy like that in if I needed someone off the bench who could play particularly a premium position up the middle defensively at shortstop. Um, So I I think he will get traded and I think people might be a little surprised by that. Um, I would look to move Finnegan and Edwards, Uh, you know, last year they kind of showed us what they think when they didn't trade either of those guys and specifically Edwards. Um, So I would do it differently than them. But if I had to guess, I think Candelario goes, I think, Vargas goes, and maybe I'll say one reliever, let's say Edwards, uh, gets moved.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good list. I think if you can get anything for Vargas, go ahead and move on. I think Candelario is good as gone already, and I wouldn't mind bringing him back if you could after the offseason, but we'll see with that, and then I agree. At least one reliever, I think, is getting moved.
4: Long
1: gone. That's going to do it for the trade talk. Let's get into some prospect talk. Keith Law joined Grant and Danny the other day to talk about the Nationals draft pick Dylan Cruz, also some of their top prospects. Here's Keith Law with Grant and Danny.
3: Keith Law knows as much about prospects, the draft, and player development as anybody in the industry covering the game at those levels. And, Keith, first of all, thanks for a few minutes. Sorry I missed you out in Seattle, but it's been great to chat with you about the draft leading up to it. How about the Nationals getting Dylan Cruz at number two overall out of LSU? What can you tell Nats fans about the pick that they made?
4: I saw you, by the way, at the Futures game. You were very, very busy. You were were running around the field trying to interview someone, and I was not going to stop you. Um, Yeah, Dylan Cruz was number one on my board. Um, Center fielder at LSU, been a star there really since the moment he got to Baton Rouge. He has an incredible track record of performance, which is the number one reason I had him first on my board, was that you, you have to have a very high degree of certainty that he is going to hit in pro ball, given that he hit so well in the SEC, the best conference in college baseball for three years, and was a guy coming out of high school. I know you remember this. He was getting first-round buzz as a high school senior before the world ended in 2020. That was LSU's gain, and obviously going to college was very much the right decision for Cruz. I think you're getting a high average and probably high-on-base guy who has a pretty good chance to stay in center. I don't think it's a guarantee, and obviously if you have someone like James Wood there, he's going to slide Cruz into a corner. The biggest question I have on Cruz is, is this a superstar level bat? Is it going to be 25 home runs on top of everything else? Or is it more of very steady, above average, high probability gets there quick, which is also really good, right? It is a question of just how good, how much good are you actually getting? But I think we all agree, everyone who does this, scouts I've talked to, we all agree, the Nats got a really good player.
2: Yeah, Keith, to, to kind of your point here, he didn't run a ton at LSU, and they didn't have to. You're in scoring position on first base there uh, with the yeah. way those guys blasted <laughs> the ball out of the yard. But True. I think he could steal some bags at, at, at kind of the upper levels as he gets used to it. I'm not talking about like a 50-steal a guy, but I think that can be part of his game as well. He can move.
4: I would characterize him as, you know, if he steals 20 bases um, – I'd say that's reasonable. He's the type of guy who might steal 20 bases in 22 attempts. He's an above-average runner, but he's very instinctive. He's a little better runner underway than he is, say, right out of the box. But he's got a very good idea of what he's doing. So it wouldn't surprise me if he was the guy at the end of the year. Maybe he doesn't steal a ton of bases, but at the end of the year, you look and realize he took a lot of extra bases. He's the guy who scores from first a lot of the time on doubles because He has some speed. He picks up speed really as he's going, and because he he just has such a good understanding. He's the type of player who'll see that ball go out to the gap and say, I can score on that.
3: Keith, I looked up some numbers against Velocity before the draft. He had over 50 plate appearances end with a pitch at 95-plus this year. Over 50. Brock mm-hmm. Wilkin had five of those, and I think yeah. Chase Davis <laughs> in the Pac-12 had six of those. Like, what kind of level of competition are we talking about in the SEC, and how does that figure into a timeline for him? Seems like he could move quickly if they choose to do that.
4: It's funny because he had the hardest thrower in college baseball on his own team. He never had the baseball schemes, right, and still had these 50-plate appearances <laughs> against good velocity. I-, I actually think your point is very, very valid that it is an indicator that he should move quickly to double A. Somebody asked me in a Q&A I did on The Athletic yesterday, where do I think Cruz goes first? Would not surprise me at all if once he signs, um, which we we're less than two weeks in the signing deadline, he goes to Fredericksburg for two weeks or so and then comes here to Wilmington for two weeks or so. Give him a home stand with each of the affiliates. Obviously makes them happy, gives them something they can sell, try to get folks to the ballpark. And then the whole idea is have him start next year in double-A. That is certainly where I would want to start him from a developmental standpoint. Even though, selfishly, I would love for him to spend three months in Wilmington next year so I can just go watch him all the time.
2: <laughs> Keith, all the athletic with us here on G&D. What do you make of the Nationals draft in general, Keith? Obviously, your headline is going to be Dylan Cruz at two. Number one for a lot of people. You don't complain about that. That's You put that in your back pocket. The rest of the way, though, what were your thoughts?
4: it's really a three-person draft, and I'm not saying that is a criticism. This is a strategy. And I think the Nationals could walk out and say, we got three, three first-round caliber guys. Um, in the third round, so they had the first pick of day two. They essentially had all of uh, Sunday night, a little bit of Monday morning, to try to figure out what to do with their remaining picks in their remaining pool. They went with Travis Socora, who was one of the top high school pitching prospects in the entire draft class, I know personally some scouts who thought he was the top high school pitching prospect in the class. He's been up to 100. He's got a really good pitch, really viable out pitch in his splitter. He's built right. He is, I think, 6'6 six, six or so and are kind of already built like a workhorse starter. He's risky because he's a high school pitcher, and they are just risky as a class. But taking that guy in the third round rather than the first round, I will do that all day long. And in between, they took Johanny Morales, who I thought was great value. A lot of people were talking about him as a top 30, top 20 pick for much of the spring. It's a great swing. He's got a pretty good body. He has not really translated that into, say, athleticism. You're not seeing great defense. But you've got a lot to work with. And I think anytime you can get a guy in the second round who was getting first-round buzz for much of the spring, it indicates to you that there's something there. People saw value there. And it's something for player development. It's a, play, it's a project for player development, but that there are a lot of tools to work with.
3: Keith Law of The Athletic joining us on Grant and Danny. Uh, James Wood, you've seen him a bunch this year. He was at Wilmington. He's now mm-hmm. at A at Harrisburg, where he's shown a ton of power. It's been challenged more, as you'd expect, and the average has come down some. How close is he?
4: I don't think he's close. Offensively, I think defensively you could put him in the majors tomorrow and he'd be fine. I mean, he is the best center fielder in the system. Uh, and you know, as I was saying, Dylan Cruz, if if wood and Cruz get to the big leagues at the same time, wood's going to be the center fielder and Cruz is going to end up being very good in a corner. Uh, wood is six seven, and guys that tall do often have a lot of trouble making contact, they have trouble managing the strike zone. And wood, I think, already had that anyway he even showed some of that in high school which is why he was the second rounder not a first rounder with all of his athletic gifts he still slipped because people saw him strike out a lot in high school and even when he was here I saw a good bit of that you can get him with fastballs up and it's going to be I'm sure he's aware of that I know the Nats are aware of that but when you're that tall it is harder to close those holes in the strike zone and I think that's going to slow his progress I was fine with him going to double-a he needs to stay there for a while
2: Keith big picture Where is this Mm -hmm. national system now? I mean, we, you know, now we know a couple of these names up the top. We're all salivating over wood for everything that you, you know, the the reason that you stated the upside there. Now we know Cruz. But this system, not too long ago, was just bereft of any Mm -hmm. upside, any talent, any reinforcements. And it kind of showed at the major league level. Where are they now, big picture?
4: They've improved. I still think it's below the median in the majors because there's really not much depth there at all but now you've got at least a half dozen guys you could be excited about on some level. Um, You know, we haven't even talked about Brady house who just got here to Wilmington a couple of weeks ago. I'm a big believer in it is huge exit velocities. I was kind of expecting him to be swinging out of his shorts a little bit more, and that's not the case. And so far he's, you know, the contact is going to remain an issue for him, but he's kept it at least under enough control and shown me enough of a sense of the strike zone that I'm optimistic that he'll be able to carry that going forward. Uh, and there are some other guys, Dylan Lyles off to a really good start. I think Harlan Suzanne is probably a reliever, but it's a heck of an arm. And the kind of guy you love to have in your system, whatever the prognosis is. Um, and, you know, you'll get Cade Cavalli back. He still counts as part of this farm system, too. So I think there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic, but I have to be kind of a realist, too. They They just, you can't go more than six or seven deep in this system before you're looking at kind of some extra guys. And that is going to take a couple of years. To really restock the the system as a whole.
3: I find House really exciting. I you know, you were at mm-hmm. the Futures game, you saw his BP and the power display he put on, which is pretty yep. special. But you've even maybe more more importantly, I mean what he's done at Wilmington, which is a terrible place to go hit, has yeah. really been eye-opening. I'd seen him a ton at Fredericksburg, but I think I he's a guy in that system I'd say that I like more today than I've liked at any point. Like the arrow is up. And that, that's saying something. I mean, this is a first-round pick just outside of the top ten a couple years ago.
4: Yeah, but he missed almost all of last year. He was good when he played, but it was only – did he even play two months' worth of games? I don't think he did. Not and fully did, healthy, yeah. No, he was – right? And they did – you know, they want to rush him back, and that was great. It looks like they did all the right things. But, you know, then he returns to Fredericksburg, and he destroys it. But you think, well, he was here last year, too, so that's not that big of a shock. And he's a little older now. But now he comes to Wilmington, you're starting to see, oh, that power is, I mean, this is everywhere power. Like you said, Wilmington, that park's practically in the river. It is really hard to get the ball out. You don't see hitters make the park look small very often. And Blue Rocks have had two of those this year because Wood would do that and House does it even more.
2: One guy I want to ask you about as well is Robert Hassel. I Listen, these are prospects. He's 21 years old, I think, so the book obviously isn't written. But I kind of thought we'd have a little bit more by now, just in terms of some of the power translating, you know, doubles and the speed. It looks like he's starting to pick it up here a little bit uh, at, at AA. But, but what have you seen and what do you think? I haven't seen him this year. I so
4: saw him quite a bit last year. But I do kind of share your disappointment. This is not in any way the player I thought that they were getting. Um, You know, I know he's been, I believe he's been nicked up a little bit this year, but I'm actually probably most surprised and disappointed at the low contact rate because that's just not who he is. We all had a pretty good idea of what he was out of the draft, and he showed it in the last two years in the minors. Great hitter for average, great command of the strike zone, make a lot of contact. The question was, would there be power? Or was this just a high average doubles guy who, you know, he's in the Dylan Cruz class at center fielder, so he could play there but he might get bumped if you have a James Wood somewhere in the system. And we're really just not seeing the contact at all this year, and I don't know if there's something physical underlying it. I have a hard time thinking we all, as an industry, just missed on this guy because he was a top-ten pick. He was very highly regarded by opposing scouts. People questioned the upside, but nobody questioned the floor. Nobody said this guy is going to have trouble hitting, and that's what we're seeing this year. He's just not hitting, and that, that absolutely confuses me, and I don't have an explanation for
3: it. Keith Law of The Athletic. Last guy in the system to ask you about. Uh, how worried should we be about Elijah Green?
4: <laughs> Sorry, bad connection. I couldn't hear you there. <laughs> what was that name? Yeah, yeah,
3: it's, exactly. It's pretty bad. It's really...
4: Yeah, it's pretty bad. I, and I did see him once earlier this year. Um, but I've talked to other folks who've seen him. Like he, he's pretty overmatched.
3: I bet, is it? But is, is there a, is there a track record of guys that get off to a start this bad, strike out this much at a ball, and turn it around, or is that seen as like, oh, oh my goodness, this is not good? I don't know of one. I don't know <sighs> of
4: such a guy. The guy I always went back to was Glenn Allen Hill. Did that with the Blue Jays, but that was in rookie ball. He was. 17 or 18 and even he you know he got to the big leagues but he never he was more tools than production um, i will say this in elijah's defense that's a kid who needs short season ball and it's gone right rob manfred and a couple owners decided not to have that intermediate level between the complex and low a that's where he needs to be right now and there's no place to demote him if they demote him it's to the gulf coast league well he was there last year so is that really helping his development so the Nats are kind of in a bind, and so is he. And it's a little unfortunate because he's certainly gifted. I don't want to give up on a player who's that talented, but I also don't know of a historical comp of somebody who who was this bad, who had this much trouble making contact his first year out and turned into a good big leaguer.
3: Wow. Keith Law with us on G&D. Uh, the Soto deal, now a mm-hmm. year almost removed. You've been talking about the system. It's improved. It's still maybe for you below the median. I think the Nats would do that trade again in a heartbeat, right? Mm-hmm. What they got back, Abrams and Gore and Wood and uh, Susana, who you referenced, and Hassel, even though he's d- struggling, uh, uh, with all due respect to uh, the sixth member of the deal who's no longer in the organization, who was a veteran big leaguer, that's the mm-hmm. package they got back. I don't know that the Padres would do the deal again. Maybe they would, but it, it almost seems like without that deal, they would be in a way worse spot right now.
4: uh, uh- I agree with you. I think the Nats would do it again. I think the Padres would do it again. I think they're very okay. happy that they have Soto. Um, you know, and they, they had some surplus. And I can, I, I know the Padres, they, they liked the guys they gave up. But they could also tell you a little concern here, a little concern there. With each one of those prospects, it was we have someone else there that we feel better about. And that's fine. That's why you have all these prospects, why you stockpile prospects so that you can make a trade like this. But the Nats, I, I actually feel like four out of the five are, are on track, uh, um, are trending in the right direction. Hassel is the one exception. You know, Abrams needs to get stronger. But I see underlying things in what he's done in the big leagues this year that I say he's got a chance to be good. It's just it's a matter of getting muscle on this poor kid. You've seen a lot of the good of Gore. It's been inconsistent, but you've seen the, the upside there. Wood obviously getting to double A as quickly as he did is a great, great sign. Susanna is what he is. Well, I think we knew at the time of the trades that, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's up to 102 Is he a starter, reliever? Who the heck knows? But you'll always take an arm like that as the fourth or fifth player in a deal. So I I think the Nets did very well. I thought so at the time, and I still hold for that opinion. Keith, great to
2: catch up with you, man. Have a great weekend. Yeah, my pleasure. You too.
1: Appreciate Keith Law for joining Grant and Danny. Appreciate you guys for listening in. That's going to do it for Bustin' Loose Baseball episode 67. Any final thoughts, Grant?
3: Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Number one, I'm looking forward to getting back to Nats Park because I missed the end of their homestand. Uh, Going into the break, going out to Seattle, it feels like it's been forever since I've been to Nationals Park. Uh, So I'm uh, itching to get back out and see them. I know you were recently at Wrigley where the boys are now. It's one of my favorite ballparks in America. I love everything about that ballpark. And uh, my favorite baseball experience ever as a fan was probably sitting at the rooftops. Uh, with all you can eat and all you can drink food and beverage uh, across the street from Wrigley. Uh, I hope they don't play one of my favorite songs in a ballpark, which is uh, <laughs> Go Cubs Go, uh, at all during this series. But uh, yeah,
1: it's a great time.
3: So it should be a fun finish to the road trip here.
1: Yeah, 100%. If you get a chance to go out to Wrigley, I mean, obviously, you probably would have to plan for that if you're in the D.C. area, the DMV. But... Go out there sometime. It is fantastic. So enjoy watching the boys against the Cubs out at Wrigley. That's going to do it for Bustin' Loose Baseball Episode 67. Appreciate you guys listening in. Make sure you like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment. We'll read those on the podcast going forward. For Grant Paulson, I'm Toby Altizer saying thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later.